Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. We are always grateful to have Andrea Lay, formerly of IdeoClick and now founder and CEO of e-commerce education consultancy, Alum Group, on the podcast to put the data from the most recent earnings reports and shareholder meetings in perspective. Q3 was a hot one across shopper, e-commerce, and omni-commerce trends, and Andrea brought all the facts and analysis. Andrea, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Lauren and I just look forward to these quarterly visits with you uh, to share the latest commerce trends with us. We're really excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So we have seen a shift in commerce behavior sort of from the age of the shopper, where the shopper gets what the shopper wants, to kind of an age of the P&L, where inflation, supply chain, and, and rising costs are causing everyone, brands and retailers, to rethink their strategies and, and sort of rationalize uh, the way forward. And I was wondering, A, do you agree with that? statement. Do you, do you agree that that's been a shift and, and we need to figure out how to do all of this profitably and, and still serve the consumer that we have to find that balance? Yeah, I think that's the tension right now for all retailers and brands alike is figuring out how do we continue to service this divergent shopper um, and meet all of their needs and meet them where they're at, but do so in a sustainable way. Uh, because I think, you know, a lot of retailers and brands saw over the last couple of years with the pandemic that e-commerce can be really expensive, you know, if not sort of done really thoughtfully. Yeah. And I have to take a moment, you know, as we sort of start the new year, uh, by the time this runs, it just thinking about that trend made really made me reflect on the tremendous amount of innovation that brands and retailers have done over the past few years to adapt in a time of COVID where the digital shelf was the only shelf and where people needed to be safe to get their products and then created convenience out of that as well. And I just want to acknowledge that because sometimes we spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about how everyone moves so slowly and and there are silos, but a lot <laughs> of, you know, a lot of really amazing stuff happened in the last few years. And I just want to sort of shout out to the audience for for the work that they've done and the work that partners like you have done to help inspire and educate around a lot of that. I couldn't agree. Thank you. And I couldn't agree more on congratulating some of the brands and retailers, maybe even all the brands and retailers, um, and just really stepping up these last yeah. couple of years and innovating and finding ways to be nimble in your organization. And um, these, these have been some really trying years. I mean, I think as uh, you know, the, the last couple of years have probably been the most disruptive that many have seen in their careers. And, uh, and you know, we saw just a lot of brands and retailers try to get creative and figure out how to service the shopper. And I think it's really inspiring. And so as we see, uh, you know, the new challenges uh, of inflation and continued supply chain and uh, whatever is coming down the pike this year. Uh, tell us how, based on the report that you are getting from, from the last quarter, like how the shopper is changing in this new environment. Yeah. So um, as you know, and probably some of the listeners know, Alum Group puts out a quarterly report. We call it the e-commerce insider quarterly, and we cover key shopper, manufacturer, e-commerce, and 
trends. And then we do like a specific deep dive on Amazon. And then we provide some takeaways for brands and retailers. And so um, that's what we're going to talk about today are some of the highlights from that report. And the shopper is changing. And, you know, I think that, well, there was a really interesting article that Jason Goldberg just wrote um, this month on, I think it was on Forbes yeah, about, yeah, where he talked about, um, you know, what's happening with e-commerce and how there's been a lot of discussion that e-commerce is down or it's decelerating or whatever. And it really depends on what you're looking at. And I think a lot of folks are kind of making the mistake of looking at, or he, he, uh, claims a lot of folks are making the mistake of correlating sort of e-commerce growth with Amazon stock price or, um, you know, or looking, it, it's really nuanced when you start looking at it by category, like apparel saw a huge shift online, but a lot of that's moved back to stores. Groceries kind of been sticky from an e-commerce, stickier from an e-commerce perspective um, post pandemic. But I think what we're seeing at a really high level and what some of the, our research um, that we've been doing suggests is that really the role of the internet's changing. And that's what I think is most interesting. So uh, contrary to what seems logical, uh, shopping online is actually becoming less transactional versus more transactional. And there's this great GWI report that we have in, in our suggested further reading in our EIQ report that talks about the reasons that consumers go online to begin with. And uh, they're using the internet the, as a, a, a bigger role of the internet for uh, consumers is for inspiration. And so in, in kind of bumping up about four places in terms of reasons that shoppers go online is for inspiration. And then uh, you know, researching things and looking for information is bump, is going down in terms of reasons that shoppers go online. And then when they are looking for information, they're typically searching social media or, you know, TikTok or Instagram, whatever for, for answers. So, and, and then keeping up with news and even researching products decreased as a primary reason in 2022. And then, like I said, finding new ideas and inspiration moved up four places to sixth place. So that's really interesting to me. Um, they had a great quote in their report that says, younger audiences start their search from a place of curiosity and expect to be led down a fun rabbit hole of new ideas rather than directed to a list of brands and products. And I think we have spent, a lot of us in the e-commerce pr profession have spent the last few years trying to figure out how to reduce clicks and reduce friction yes. and just get the shopper to the products as fast as we can. Um, don't worry about storytelling, just like get them right to the point of activation. And this research is showing that um, at least the younger generations, that's not what they want. They're looking to have a journey. And so that's really interesting to me. Um in terms of what does that mean for our for consumer brands from an advertising perspective, from a communicating with shoppers perspective, what does that mean for retailers in terms of how to create like more engaging experiences? Um, so that that was a surprising discovery uh, for us in looking through some of the research that 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 role of the internet is changing and kind of what the shopper is looking for. Andrew, do you think that? that creates a new place for social commerce to come into play like i feel like it's it's been out there and it's in pockets and it's definitely in other countries much larger than it is in north america but do you think now this will provide much more of an opportunity because that's what helps you do the inspiration and the rabbit holing down an instagram post or something like that 
For sure. And if you look at Cyber Week, you know, some of the reporting there, I think this might have been CNBC or no, this was the Salesforce report. Um, so 76% of Cyber Week e-commerce traffic was from mobile devices. So we we kind of can expect that. But social media referrals represented 10% of, a tra- of the traffic. And while that seems small, it's up 22 points year on year. Wow. So yes, to answer your question, Lauren, <laughs> the data is certainly showing that social shopping is, um, is, is, is growing. It's small, but growing really quickly. And I think that the the brands and retailers who can really capitalize on that um, are the ones that are, are going to win. So another trend that we're seeing from a shopper perspective is that they want to be involved in like the product development journey. And uh, Mintel in their global consumer trends report had a great quote where they said, Brands have to make room for the new C in their C-suite. Consumers are investing, co-creating, and voting for change alongside brands. And this one was really interesting to me, too. A couple of years ago, when Clubhouse was a thing, um, Melissa Burdick and I did this Clubhouse with the owner for Wise. Wise is an electronics manufacturer. They make headphones and lots of other products. Um, and, and they were telling us that if they had another every additional dollar that they had to spend on marketing, they spent it on um, Reddit because they had these like really strong consumer forums on Reddit, and they were able they they would um, they got a lot of product feedback that way to help improve some of the existing products. They allowed consumers to vote and put give input into new products they were going to develop. Um, and so I think this, this is also an interesting trend, albeit a smaller one than the one we discussed previously about using the internet for inspiration, um, but figuring out ways to uh, collaborate with the consumers on the product development journey. Uh, I think is really interesting. And so uh, just looking at some of those examples and and um, and thinking about how brands might collaborate more with consumers. And there's lots of mediums to do that now, right? With social media and, um, and forums like uh, Reddit, which is interesting. So Andrea, shopper trends, we talked about a couple of those. Now, when we think about the e-commerce side and we're looking at Omnicommerce changing the game and really thinking about the holistic journey. What are you seeing from the e-commerce side of things? Yeah, so if so, we're I think we're on a journey <laughs> in terms of e e-commerce and retailer sort of digital evolution. And I think where we started was this world of omni-channel, and that was like, how do we get and, and to some degree, brands, you know, participate, participated in this in, as well. But how do we get parity in assortment and programs between e-commerce, like physical retail and digital retail for an omni player? Um, so that's where we started, omni-channel. And then I think where we moved next and where we kind of are now is omni-commerce. And that's thinking about how do we remove points of friction? So how do we... Um, make it easier for the shopper to go back and forth. A, an example of that might be, you know, returning, being able to do online returns in store or having um, boat BOPIS or whatever it is, like kind of blending those experiences, making the them a little bit more frictionless between physical and digital. But where I think we're headed next and where I think the winning retailers will be playing is in more of a differentiated experience across physical and digital. And that might look like more complementary experiences. So first we thought it was important to have parity. And I think now 
a lot of retailers are realizing that you actually need a differentiated experience for the shopper who's buying online or click to order versus the one that's coming into the store. And a great example of that, that we just actually gave them an, an award for best Omni experience in the um, on the CPG guys when we did the Omnis this month uh, is Sephora. And Sephora does a really nice job of this because there, you can, as a shopper, there are different benefits to shopping in-store versus shopping online, but they both have clear benefits. So when shopping online, the shopper can access their robust reviews platform. Um, beca maybe because they only do beauty, they have a pretty best-in-class ta search taxonomy and filtering um, system within within their architecture of their site. You can get samples. You can choose your samples at the end. When you go to check out, you're able to engage with their um, loyalty program. And then in a lot of cities now, you can actually shop by like skin issue. I mean, they have a lot of ways for you to discover products on the platform. Um, <clears throat> when you go in store, however, you have a different experience, which is which also has some unique benefits. You can work with a beauty consultant and learn about the products. You can try things on. And then they have that mini aisle, which I've, I have heard anecdotally is like the most productive, maybe 20, 20, 20 square feet of <laughs> real estate in a store. Um, Cause they feel like samples, but they're actually like all $30 each or something. Uh, it gets me every time, me too. <laughs> but, but they have like a differentiated experience online and in store uh, but they've also, they've also got the parity and then they have also removed a lot of the friction. Um, but now they've kind of moved on to this next evolution of differentiation. And I think that's where, um, the winning retailers are going to sit. Like, if you look at, there's this new H and M format. Did you guys see this where they actually, they're like, it's like lifestyle. So they have like concerts and local artists and things in this enormous footprint store. And, but they, and then they have the clothes kind of around with dressing rooms. So you can like try them on and then like, you know, listen to some music. It's more of a, an experience wow. and it's met from the H&M leadership. It's meant to show you kind of the different ways that places you could wear the clothes or occasions or like give you more opportunities to interact with them as opposed to just sort of being in a small dressing room, um, which who knows if it'll be successful, but like this kind of experimentation in terms of differentiating that in-store experience and the online experience, I think is really cool. Well, that's what I'm excited about, uh, digging into what's happening to respond to that the, you know, the, the need for inspiration, the rabbit holing, as Lauren would say, <laughs> um, how are brand manufacturing manufacturers uh, reacting to this, uh, you know, sort of expanded way to engage with the consumer? Yeah, well, first, I think um, it's important to note some of the other uh, challenges that some of these retailers are facing right now. They're having to go through this digital evolution that we just talked about, but they also are going through a reckoning of investments of their own. And so it's hard to re respond to that divergent shopper when things are so expensive and they've got, so they're dealing with like overstocks. They have kind of a COVID hangover of overstocked product. Um, the, so they're working with suppliers that have higher cost of goods, labor costs for stores and, and other types of roles are rising. And then you have this shopper that we just talked about who's demanding differentiation and you have incremental investments to support that. And you've, you know, as retailers, they're making a lot of investments in 
their retail media platforms, but those aren't all going to pay out right away. So there's kind of a waiting period until those grow and develop audiences. And so they, ha they have cost efficiencies that have to come from somewhere. And so I think where they're coming from are, um, you know, less staffing. So well, figuring out ways to do more with less from a staffing perspective, certainly in stores, I think we're all seeing that. And then some operational efficiencies in, in picking and ordering and, and how we're managing inventory, uh, but also pressure on suppliers, yeah, right? Yeah. To, for lower, lower, lower costs, but actually suppliers have higher costs. So in kind of turning to those brand manufacturers, we, we ran a LinkedIn survey a couple of weeks ago uh, where we asked brands uh, to list their top challenge area going into 2023. And 50% of them listed profitability with retailers as their top challenge area. And so, um, you know, these profit concerns are have now surpassed supply chain challenges. So last quarter, we gave the same survey and supply chain challenges weren't at the, wasn't at the top, but it was a close second to profitability. The gap was much bigger this time around. <clears throat> because all parties are kind of dealing with this changing shopper behavior and rising costs and thinner margins. Um, and so I think some of the things we're seeing from the consumer brand perspective is they have some really tough decisions on the rising costs of retail media spend. So now everyone has an ad platform. And in a lot of cases, it's pay to play. You know, on Amazon, it's been pay to play for a while in that you won't sell as much if you don't advertise. But if you look at some of the Omni players, it's part of the annual vendor negotiation. So you, you're committed to, you know, certain levels of advertising. So they're they're kind of grappling with that. They're, I think a lot of brands are working on some challenges around build versus buy. You know, as we know, the agency space has has become prolific. You know, there's an you can hire an agency to provide you with any piece of data now or support you in any way as a consumer brand in e-commerce. And so I think that the brands are really thinking about where can we consolidate, where are we, where do we have overlapping support? You know, what are some ways, what are some ways we can do this ourselves or build it in-house? Um and then, you know, obviously working on some tough decisions around assortment planning and, you know, what's manu manufacturing considerations and things like that. So kind of what we're seeing is that these brands are having to figure out how to retrain their organizations to be more flexible. And so we ran a share group earlier this week on organizational readiness for e-commerce. And that that word flexible came up so often during the conversation, um, which means, you know, figuring out ways to have like to demand tighter measurements, um, the impact of retail media spend, um, maybe figuring out ways to provide some P&L flexibility to shift budgets around on media when things aren't working, um, but just finding ways to be more flexible and agile to the changing shopper and to the retailers who are continuing to put pressure <laughs> <laughs> on the manufacturers for lower lower costs. And then I think the other thing we heard in that share group, which I thought was interesting, was that a lot of these brands are thinking about some of these tier two e-commerce players and maybe prioritizing them a little bit more because they're lower costs to serve right now. You know, they don't have the the commitments for from a retail media perspective that maybe some, some of the big players have. And so where can they look, where can these brands look for profitable growth right now? So Andrea, I I want to pause for a second to to really emphasize the flexibility and the agility here because I think we talk about a lot how brands need to pivot and they need to change as the entire industry changes. And I think this is such a perfect example. Like the omni-channel experience, being flexible with your org structure, like there is no 
set it and forget it. And I have so many conversations with brands all the time that are like, well, this is what my structure is, or this is the plan we've already had. And I think it's important to really emphasize that that might need to change every year. That might need to be tweaked during that year. And you really need to be able to, to pivot as the broader industry changes. And I just want to double click on that a bit, because I think that's such an important fact for any leader at any level to hear that their org structure might not be the same every year and their process and their priorities really need to pivot and change. I couldn't agree more, Lauren. And I think you said that really well. You know, if, if any, if brands and retailers took one thing away from our conversation today, I hope it's that they need to be flexible this year. <laughs> yeah. And continue to be flexible as they stay in this industry. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that, that that came up as a part of this. Well, and just the strong um, through line that we're having here, uh, without planning it really around this, this, the need to get to profitability uh, and to understand how to do this responsibly. And that requires flexibility because uh, the, what, what's being thrown at you from all different sides is, is happening as we speak. Uh, and and when when I when I think about that, you know, I'm, I remember Lauren. I mean, the series that you and Chris Perry at First Mover just finished on uh, on the P on looking at both sides of the P and L that you have to not only understand your P and L as a brand manufacturer, but you also need to understand your retailer's P and L so you know what leverage they're trying to get over you to run their business. And uh, so I would point our listeners towards that series. And we, we are going to, um, to have podcast episodes that are also redoing the stuff that you did on the webinar. So uh, I think that data is really good to look at as well. Totally agree, Peter. And, and Andrea, I know that a lot of times when we think about like what's coming next, we look to Amazon to your point about uh, looking at their stock prices <laughs> to try and determine what's coming next. What are we seeing from Amazon and what's changing or what are they doing that, that maybe we should look out for? Yeah. Well, some of the big themes from Amazon, um, I guess, well, first there was a great interview with him that just, that was just done this month, um, at a pitch book, uh, event in New York, it's on YouTube and it's in our, it's in our suggested reading as well, where Andy Jassy talked for like 45 minutes about all kinds of topics, um, and, and it was really interesting to hear his point of view on where Amazon is and where they're headed. A uh, couple of the things that he called out were around, you know, they asked him about all the extra capacity they'd built and how they were over leveraged, or maybe that's not the right word, but like um, got a little over their skis on uh, on space and it hurt, had some painful impacts to their P&L. And he said he would do the same thing again. Like it was the right decision. They'll grow into it. You know, they're still feeling really bullish on their growth. And it's interesting because there was a uh, Evercore study that was reported by the Wall Street Journal around um, customer satisfaction of Amazon. So the number percentage of customers who report being extremely or very satisfied with Amazon fell this year to 79% down from a high of 88%. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've, we've all experienced probably some hiccups Amazon's had during the pandemic, but at the end of the day, they, their e-commerce business, it continues to grow. You know, if you look at online stores this last quarter, it grew 7% year over year. That's pretty good considering the comp that they have that they're dealing with the year on year comp. 
Uh, but you know, it's becoming a smaller percentage of their total revenue. So if you look at online stores and, um, and third party, you know, there's still, it's, it's still, um, less than 50% of their total revenue now. And they're, a lot of their revenue is now coming from software and that's AWS subscription services, advertising services, et cetera. Um, but I think what we're starting to see them see at a, from a theme perspective with Amazon is that they're starting to behave a little more like a grown-up company <laughs> versus the startup that we have always expected them to be, right? We've always expected the super strong growth and the whole business is doing really well. They grew 15% last quarter, um, year on year, but so they're still delivering pretty decent growth, but they're starting to look more like a mature organization um, versus this, this startup environment that we've come to expect from them and doing things like layoffs and rationalizing investments and, um, you know, just kind of behaving in, in a more mature way. Uh, another thing that I thought was interesting, you know, with all the layoffs and a lot of them being focused on Alexa uh, I wondered if maybe they were just going to kind of close down that whole division, but he, in the interview was still pretty bullish on it. He said that he still felt like they were building the best virtual assistant. Um, but that, that it was the vision. They still believe in the vision, but that it's just taking a lot longer than they'd expected. And he did continue. He said several times that it is driving a lot of shopping transactions and it must, they must be doing a lot of work to understand, um, you know, how much, how much like how, how to attribute some of that interaction that we have with those devices to sales. And so I would love to look at that data. They'll probably never share it, but it'd be great to see it. But I think, uh, you know, we're starting, they're in the same boat as, as all the other retailers. They ended up with too much inventory. They had too much space. And now they're trying to kind of right size the business for and dealing with a really unpredictable shopping behavior. And I think they're trying to right size the business um, just like everyone else. Speaking of of shopping behavior, I wanted to go there because when I think of sort of inspired uh, rabbit hole shopping, that's not my my thought of Amazon. Uh, and I was wondering if you how you think they will respond to those trends that they're seeing, or do you think they already are? And I just haven't really seen it very much. I think they I think that they are. I think some of those projects um, just it takes them longer to get scale than it used to. I mean, they just launched like a TikTok kind of their, their answer to a TikTok. I'm blanking on what it's called right now, but they, they, um, like a short form video, shoppable video, um, answer, uh, to that. And so I think they're trying to find ways to, to do that. They also are really leaning into the use of influencers and content creators, particularly in the fashion space. So there are a number of really high quality YouTubers that I follow now that I'm pretty sure work for Amazon because they're mostly featuring Amazon fashion. Um, and that's a great way to get at the shopper from a like creative and inspired uh, perspective and then direct them to Amazon for the transaction. But the theme is that, that they have to do these things off their platform because their plat platform is so transactional and they yeah. can't change it at this point. So, you know, we know that all the shoppers go there, like 80, 90% of them just type stuff in the search bar and go from there and browsing is a mess and there's too many products. So I think if they, in the areas where we have seen them experiment with being a little bit more of an ins inspired shopping journey, it's, ha it's had to be off their platform and it's been on other platforms or on, you know, 
on other platforms created by them. Uh, so I think that's how they're going to have to get there. But in it, at its core, their platform is a, is addressing, I mean, based on this GWI research, it's addressing like an aging shopper, the one that wants the transactional <laughs> experience, not the one that wants discovery. I mean, maybe they can get there through some of their automation and personalization. And I think they believe they're, they're getting there with their advertising. Um, you know, that's highly... Uh, has a huge component of relevance built into it. And so maybe it feels like personalization, but I think they got a long way to go. All right. Andrea, with with all of the things that we've been talking about throughout this podcast of the drive towards profitability, of the need for new experiences, of uh, the, the pressure to spend uh, and invest with retailers, what do brands do about it? How, what can What should they be anticipating in the coming year and making sure that they have the right strategy and resources and agility in place to win. Yeah. Um, so if you were to fast forward through the whole podcast, these would be the, these would be the takeaways for, <laughs> yeah. for the brands, right? Exactly. Um, so I think I would boil it down to four things. I think it is agility. So we talked a little bit about that earlier, agility to react to changing shopper behavior and changing retailer priorities. So brands, I think brands need to really create space and budget to change course quickly and find ways to gain flexibility. That that it's really, you have to have such a great relationship with your finance partner these days uh, because it's, it, it sort of challenges the traditional budget planning and organizational structure, I would think. It really does. And in the share group this week, we were hearing about all these little hacks that some of the brands are using in their P&Ls and with their finance partners to, um, you know, to maybe like redefine what some of those buckets could mean. So for example, um, they had, you know, they had a budget for agents, agencies or, or contractors to support something, um, or maybe it was agencies, but instead they were in housing and then they were using that line item to, um, to, where that's where they were putting the expense of the con of the contractors, even though that wasn't like actually what it was designated for. So I think these little hacks on the PL and again, that flexibility and that relationship with those finance partners is huge. And finding kind of that that space so that you can quickly change course and gain some flexibility within your organization. It's huge. Mm-hmm. I think it can take the form of, of flexibility around staffing. So maybe instead of FTEs, you're looking at in-housing, which has like more flexibility inherently built into it, or some of those flex some flexibility in the PL, like we just talked about. Um and I think being able in, in that agility too, it isn't just internal, it's figuring out how to experiment with some of your uh retail partners and focus on some of the platforms that are helping shoppers discover your product. So and Andrea, agility, I would really almost, huge. I would almost pair that with resilience, right? Like as you were talking, this is exactly what I was thinking of because all of that is a test and learn too. Like it's a, it's a pivot, it's a change, it's a see if it's right. And, and, and maybe change and go back to the way you were doing it before, or go to a new way of thinking. And I, I feel like people shouldn't be afraid. Organizations shouldn't be afraid of doing that. Like if it didn't work, try something. Absolutely. This is for sure the time for that. And I think, I mean, as we covered in the, in in the intro, um, brands have been doing a great job of that for the last couple of years, being flexible, right. And trying testing and learning and making decisions quickly. And, um, and so, you know, we just need to continue a lot of that behavior. So agility, huge. The second 
thing takeaway I think is around um, really putting a focus on some of that loyalty marketing and that repeat business for consumable clients and even for some other um, types of manufacturers. The shopper is discovering products in so many different ways right now. We talked about, you know, how it's um, become, you know, we're starting from more of an inspiration led uh, POV. There is social, there's, there's video content. There's so much out there. And I think that, so they're expo exposed to so many more brands than they ever were before. And we didn't really talk about this too much in the report. We covered it in our last quarter's report about brand switching being higher than ever, shoppers trading down due to inflationary pressures. Um, and so as some of these shopper budgets get tighter, giving the shopper reasons to stick with your brand is so critical. And, um, you know, obviously it's cheaper to keep an existing shopper than it is to acquire a new one. So this isn't the time to lose them. So, I mean, don't forget about that loyalty marketing and really focusing on those existing shoppers. So that'd be our second takeaway. And then the third is to seek out profitable growth. So again, we're hearing some of these brands focus on some of the tier two e-commerce players, or even just retailers in general that are possibly more profitable for the brands. And so it's time to really kind of focus on maybe give some attention to some of those guys and also think about ways to be as efficient as possible with the retail media spend. I think, um, you know, we have, we have all put a lot of emphasis on that over the last few years, and there's so many tools and so many measurement capabilities now available to us to help us be really efficient. And then focusing on some of those small scale um, advertising and, and media experiments that we could scale up, right? Again, kind of going back to that flexibility. So that's three. And then four is find ways to invest in the future. You know, we talked about this on the last podcast, but when, when budgets are tight and everyone's kind of hunkering down, your competitors are hunkering down, the brands that can find still find a budget and time and resources to innovate and invest, plant some seeds for the future are the ones that are going to win. Um, and so it's really hard to do that right now, but it's necessary. Yeah. So find opportunities to, you know, plant some seeds for the future, you know, invest in that sustainable uh, packaging that, that, you know, you've been, you've put on the back burner during COVID or in that product development for the product that, you know, is really going to resonate with tomorrow's consumer. Um, those are, I think, some investments that are important to carve out right now. Really, really good advice, Andrea, uh, you know, I, and I, that's why I have such incredible respect for uh, the listeners on our podcast, the members of the DSI, you know, all, everyone out there who is sort of has been through this period and is now entering another period of, of, of uncertainty and, and pressure, the taking on that challenge and often being the drivers of those initiatives and change. And because this is where the growth is coming from. And so being able to make that case and build that broader case so that the rest of the organization will kind of come along is, is an incredibly hard job on top of their daily job. And I, I have such respect for it because I know, you know, the, the list of four that you put out are absolutely right and really hard. <laughs> you know, none of this is sort of like, oh, great. Yeah, no, thanks, Andrea. I got it. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, you talk to so many uh, manufacturers and retailers. Like, are you still, are you finding the appetite for that last one in particular? Like, do people feel like it's possible or are they, is everyone in sort of crisis mode at the moment? 
I mean, there's, there definitely, um, the manufacturers seem to fall into kind of two camps. Like there's ones who are still struggling with supply chain issues, either not enough inventory or way too much. And, and just sort of like, um, managing to the day to day and, and things are really hard. And then there are some that have, for whatever reason, whether it's strategy or, I mean, in some cases it's just luck, like whatever product category you're in or, or manu manufacture locations you were manufacturing in or whatever, um, are in a little bit of a better spot. And the ones that are, um, and, and some of them are, you know, focusing on some of those future initiatives. And, and I think that's so key to find ways to do that, even if it feels like the day-to-day -day is so much right now. Yeah. Well, Andrea, as always, thank you for coming here and sharing these insights with our audience. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to the two of you and um, looking forward to next quarter. Yeah, and as we close, I just, if you don't mind, a sort of point of personal privilege kind of, uh, today is uh, our our um, production engineer's last uh, recording with us. <gasps> Nolan Piccola has been with us first as a co-op from Northeastern University for um, for six months, and then has been uh, consulting with us for the remainder of his college career. And I just wanted to thank him for making this engine roar, <laughs> keeping us honest, and uh, cutting all my stupid parts. So. Uh, <laughs> which are many, you'd be surprised. Uh, so Nolan, I just wanted to thank you. Just uh, let everyone hear your voice on your last day. Oh my God. Thank you, Peter. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a pleasure working on this podcast and thank you to our listeners for listening. All thanks, right. Nolan. <laughs> thank you, Nolan. Good job, Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Andrea. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks again to Andrea for bringing both the news and the expert commentary in one package. Links to the latest EIQ report are available on the Alum Group's homepage, spelled A-L-L-U-M-E. If you want to keep up with all things DSI, head on over to digitalshelfinstitute.org and click to become a member in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for being part of our community. <laughs>